Oh Lord, may your word only be spoken and may your word only be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. This past summer, I had the privilege of being a chaplain at the Barbara C. Harris Camp and Conference Center up in Greenfield, New Hampshire. And I was a chaplain for one of the weeks of summer camp they have up there for kids from the diocese. And one of the games I got to play was watermelon water polo. What is that, you might ask? The object was to push the slightly greased watermelon to the wooden dock that was behind the other team. We were in an enclosed swimming area in Otter Lake. And the object was to get the watermelon from one side to the other. Well, as you can imagine, it was a little bit of wild chaos. The watermelon floated just below the surface so you couldn't really see it. So there we were clawing away at this thing we thought was there, and sometimes it was, and sometimes it wasn't. And before long, the watermelon split into two pieces. So then we're playing with two watermelons. And then before we know it, I kid you not, one of the pieces splits again. We have three pieces of watermelon floating around in the water. We're all trying to get them to the opposite dock. Trying to get a grasp on what Luke is saying this morning... It's kind of like trying to get a grasp on that watermelon. It's bracing. It's frustrating. It's exhilarating. And it's even, let's face it, a little bit comical. A biblical scholar named C.H. Dodd had this to say about parables. A parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. There is certainly vividness, strangeness, doubt teasing the mind into active thought as we confront this parable. The story begins with a rich man. He's likely an absentee landlord and something of a commodities dealer as well, given the the large, large quantities of oil and wheat that are referenced later in the passage. This is not uh, husbands and wives coming to get you know, a jug of oil for their household. This is like a middleman buying a hundred of something and then selling them to someone else. This is, so this is a big kind of commodities dealer. And the rich man calls in one of his managers upon hearing that he has been irresponsible with the company's assets, so to speak. And then in our modern parlance, we might say that the manager has been given a pink slip. Continuing with the contemporary parallel, perhaps, we might say that before he's ordered to clear out his cubicle and escorted to the door, and before word of the termination gets to the water cooler and the lunchroom and out onto the street, the manager manages to sneak out and try to set up a future for himself. 
He meets quickly with his clients and gives them new, very favorable payment terms. And of course, this is before the clients know that this manager has been fired. Now, in the business climate of the first century, embedded as it was in a deeply patriarchal honor and shame culture, the manager's activity would actually have been a brilliant move for a number of reasons. First, the manager is the direct representative of this wealthy man. It's as if the person, the client, is dealing directly with the big rich man himself when he deals with the manager. Therefore, if the rich man is to save face, he must honor the account adjustments negotiated by his outgoing manager, even though privately he may be furious, even though he did not authorize them, and even though, in fact, he's just fired them. He has to honor it, or he will lose face. And in fact, by honoring this crooked deal that his manager made, his status may actually go up because he'll be seen as the magnanimous, merciful, generous benefactor by the clients who've had their bills greatly reduced. So the rich man actually kind of wins because the balance in his honor account goes up, even though he may in the short term lose a bit of cash. And the former manager, though he's just been fired, probably will still land on his feet because he has moved very, very swiftly to pad his fall from grace by ingratiating himself to the community, making friends. He's going to need them. Now, here's where things begin to get a little bit murky. I say that because the parable seems to end with the rich man, the guy who's been cheated, showing his admiration for the former manager, even though he's just been swindled. And the way the phrases are punctuated, if you look at it in the text, it seems kind of likely that actually Jesus is approving of this man's behavior. How can this be? Well, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard has one answer. We have to go really deep for this Kierkegaard now. He used it when he tried to make sense of the binding of Isaac in the book of Genesis. And it applies, I think, here. Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard called what we need to do the teleological suspension of the ethical. The teleological suspension of the ethical, which is to say, just for a moment, bracket your ethical objections and be open to what the Spirit may be saying to you. In order to get the meaning that God may want us to get out of the story, we have to lay aside our moral scruples. Jesus does that a lot, doesn't he? Get your moral stuff out of the way and let's look at what's really going on here. It's kind of freeing, actually. Jesus really does ask us to upend our tidy little worlds. Now, it could be that Jesus is praising something else than dishonesty, per se. He could be saying a number of things. He could be saying, you know, this man, this manager, he really cares about relationships. 
They really matter more than the money, whatever its source. You don't want to steal, but the chances are good, let's face it, that some of the money in all of our accounts has been generated at the unjust expense of someone. Let's face it, none of our money is untainted. It's just a fact. All that we have somewhere along the line has been tainted by the exploitation of someone. It's a fact. However, use it for God's purposes and redeem it. Jesus may be saying, you know, one doesn't want to be buying affection or friendship, but one wants to use one's resources to be building relationships, to be widening the circle of life and of connection and of engagement, widening that rather than constricting it. Jesus could be saying, you know, that if my disciples were as promptly responsive to my message as this dishonest manager was to the news of his imminent demise, the kingdom would spread like wildfire. Jesus could be saying that if my disciples cared as much about really connecting with people in the messiness and sin of their lives as they cared about their own possessions, the kingdom would be spreading like wildfire. Jesus could be saying, if my disciples expended the same energy and money on security and preservation for others as they did for themselves, what would we have here? The kingdom would be spreading like wildfire. I think that maybe God is asking us to wrestle with our attitudes about money and our possessions the same way we have to wrestle the meaning out of this passage. There may not be one clear lesson to take away from it. It's not neat. It's not pretty. It is messy. And it brings life. There may actually be a command not to have an answer, but a command to keep the questions alive and lively, teasing the mind into active thought. Remember what Mr. Dodd said, a parable teases the mind into active thought. My wrestling and reading of the rich man and his shrewd manager yields these questions for me. Maybe you'll have different questions, but maybe my questions will be your questions, but maybe God has questions that are just for you about possessions and money. Am I able to see past the self-righteousness and self-preservation that keeps me from taking a clear-eyed look at the ways I actually live out my faith with regard to my possessions as opposed to how I say I do or imagine that I do? Am I aware of how deep the resistance is in my heart to changing that? Am I aware that my money and possessions are not only or even primarily mine? Am I nimble enough to see and act where the Spirit may be indicating a need? This manager sure was nimble, wasn't he? He knew exactly where to go and what to do. Are we as nimble? That's not to say there isn't a place for sustained attention, but there's a place for nimbleness too. Does my money build lasting relationships with my neighbors? Or does it hinder those relationships? 
Do my possessions insulate me? Does my money insulate me from the world around me, from engaging with the world? Or does it connect me to it, engage me with it? And finally, for me, for now, am I working and praying toward a wholehearted, integrated approach to my possessions and money? Or am I content to remain divided and conflicted? It's a real question. Now, I have to say that um, at 10.33 on this Sunday morning, the 19th of September, I am still chasing after that watermelon. (laughs) In a brisk lake on a summer's day, But I have to say, it's really an exhilarating swim. Come on in. The water is fine. Amen.